Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Nicola Guess. Nicola is a registered dietitian with a PhD from Imperial College London. Her primary research interests are in the prevention and management of type 2 diabetes, and she's a recognized world expert in the effect of nutrition on the pathophysiology of type 2. She's also a co-founder of City Dietitians based in London. Today, we're going to be talking all about diabetes and potential nutrition strategies for its management. Let's talk science. Thank you very, very much for joining us tonight. I'm really, really happy that you were able to make some time and um, speak with us. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Great. Um, so um, I think the best way to introduce you is to have you introduce yourself. So would you be able to kind of tell um, the listeners basically who you are, um, what you do, and how you got into your, your current uh, line of work? Please. Sure. Um, so hello, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Nicola Guest. I'm a registered dietitian with a PhD in diabetes or type 2 diabetes prevention. Um, so basically, my whole life, I wanted to be a registered dietitian. I thought that's where I wanted to go clinically. Um, that seemed interesting to me. Um, and then when I was working as a dietitian in the NHS, working with patients, trying to help them manage their type 2 diabetes, it became apparent that we didn't have good advice to give to people. Um, I wasn't very successful. I don't think anyone was in helping people improve their, their disease risk and so forth. And so what I wanted to do is go into research and figure out how can we improve uh, the lives of, of people with type 2 diabetes better and how can we prevent it. So I did a PhD at Imperial and like within on day one, I was hooked and I was like, right, never going back to clinical. Um, and I fell into type 2 diabetes research, um, mainly on prevention, but now I do a lot of management. Um, and really the last uh, 10 years, because I started my PhD in 2010, has taught me how much we don't know about what nutrition does to all of the underlying physiology of type 2. Like we, we haven't had great studies to date. We know that weight gain uh, contributes, but precisely what it's doing to insulin resistance uh, beta cell function and what nutrients do actually we don't have great data on so that's that's been the focus of my work to date okay fantastic um so i suppose before we move into uh, you know any more detailed conver uh, conversations about this um i'd like to kind of get a little bit of basic information about what diabetes is and and maybe if we can build on that as well i talk a little bit about pre-diabetes as well Sure. I mean, so type 2 diabetes basically is a condition of hyperglycemia. So the blood glucose is too high. And the two causes are beta cell dysfunction. So effectively, the beta cells of the pancreas are the cells that produce insulin. They stop working properly. So that's one contributing factor. The other factor is insulin resistance. And that's when insulin simply doesn't work as well on the target tissues as it should. So if we think that insulin's role is taking glucose from the blood into the tissues. If it doesn't work properly, that's happening less. So glucose stays in the bloodstream. And then if your beta cells are failing, there's not enough insulin to do that job anyway. So the, the combination of the two causes high blood glucose. But what's really important is that the presentation differs a lot between people. So in, in one person, I mean, crudely, 80% of the cause of the high blood sugar could be beta cell dysfunction. In other people, beta cell dysfunction plays a much smaller role, and it's, the hyperglycemia is primarily caused by insulin resistance. And so the heterogeneity of the presentation of type 2 has profound implications for how we manage it. Um, so 
basically these these higher uh, levels of glucose are causing the issue. But what is it about high levels of glucose? So, so a, lo- a lot of people will think, okay, glucose, it's sugar, sugar, we eat sugar. Um, but you're saying that glucose is causing a problem within the body, or high levels of glucose, I should say, are, are causing um, issues within the body. What is it specifically about glucose? What does it do within the body that causes these issues? Well, I mean, so glucose is necessary for life. And if we, if we had hypoglycemia, um, let's put some numbers on it. If your blood glucose goes to about one or two millimoles per litre, that can be life-threatening because your cells uh, need glucose to survive. So your glucose has to stay within the target range. And typically we would say this is between probably four and six or four and seven millimoles per litre. That's, that's the healthy range that someone with no family history of type two, active and slim, their glucose will rarely go above or out of that range. So just the same that, that hypoglycemia is bad, hyperglycemia is bad. And the reason we think is, is that to, to kind of describe it, I think in, in quite graphic terms, but it describes the process quite well, is glucose acts as a weak acid. So over time, you know, if your blood glucose goes high for half an hour, it's not a problem. What happens is when 24 hours a day, your blood glucose is higher than it should be, and that starts destroying the blood cells. Okay, and so when you mention uh, destroying the blood cells, we're, we're talking almost about uh, a physical effect of glucose on yeah. um, on tissues and structures within the body. Yeah. Um, and, and just because it, it kind of ties in with my own research a little bit um, on cardiovascular disease, would this... Uh, would that damage um, that we see have anything to do with the relationship between um, kind of higher levels of cardiovascular disease in individuals with type 2 diabetes? Yes. So it, it's definitely a contributing factor, but it's not the whole story. Um, and, and getting blood glucose under control is very important for the management of type 2. But what we've learned, you know, over the past maybe 10, 15 years is that's not enough. So if there have been some trials done where the glucose control improves, but there's actually been kind of depressingly little impact on cardiovascular disease and macrovascular disease. So trying to understand all of the other things that are happening is, is a huge area of research, and I'm sure yours. And one of those things, it certainly seems clear now, is insulin. So in, in people with prediabetes and early stage type 2, having an excess of insulin um, could also be contributing to some of the macrovascular disease. Okay. Um, if we get back to to insulin, um, could you just kind of give, for, for anybody who's, who's not familiar, just a, an idea of the role that insulin plays um, within our body and kind of what kind of happens when uh, or how the, let's say, um, what can happen with in our body that causes issues with our insulin production? Sure. I mean, so so insulin is necessary for life. We know that because if you had type 1 diabetes before the discovery of insulin, um, it was a death sentence. So you have to have insulin to stay alive. And the reason is insulin helps get energy into your cells. So not just glucose, but also fatty acids as well. So let's think about a situation. If you didn't have insulin, your blood glucose could be 40 millimoles per liter. So we call seven diabetes, but your blood glucose could be 40 So you've got all of that glucose, which is essentially energy, but it's staying in the bloodstream. What insulin's job is is a large part of doing is getting that energy into the cells, into your muscle cells. Think about your your uh, the muscles of your heart. They're muscles. They need the energy. So does your diaphragm and et cetera. So if you don't have glucose into your cells, you can die. So this is one of the processes that 
having hypo or, or a deficit of insulin is important. What happens in type two, you get some beta cell dysfunction. So you don't produce enough insulin, but you still produce some. And this is very different from type one diabetes where they essentially have no um, insulin at all and you have to um, inject it. That said, you can get, when you get to very late stage type two diabetes, you need insulin. And that might be every time you eat or it might be all during the day. And we used to think that was because the beta cells are failing structurally. So effectively your beta cells die. What we're beginning to think happens in type 2 diabetes now is it's not cell death, so those cells are still there, but they become so dysfunctional that they basically act like they're not there. And so this has been really interesting in, in the management of type 2, because what we've seen with, I'm sure we'll talk about the direct trial, is you can reboot those beta cells and they can start to work normally again. And we didn't think this was the case. So in type 1, you don't have beta cells. The immune system destroys them and you need insulin. In type 2 diabetes, the functional um, uh, properties of the beta cell are negatively affected. And that may be, we may be able to restore that um, to, a, to a degree that might vary on the duration of type 2 diabetes. So if we look at, let's say, a, a timeline of, of the de development of diabetes, if we go, um, say, from, let's say, a healthy individual all the way through prediabetes to somebody who is diabetic, what are we talking about? What kind of key stages are we looking at in the development of the disease? I mean, so this is, is quite a gray area of research because to really examine beta cell dysfunction takes really expensive tests. They're very complicated and sophisticated tests that we can't do in hospitals, we can't do in the GP clinic. So it has to be um, done in a research environment and they're expensive and time consuming. So we don't have a lot of data. But what we do know is that you can see declining beta cell function in children whose parents have type 2 diabetes. So the, these kids might be six years old. Their blood glucose is perfectly normal. They show no signs at all of diabetes. Yet already you can see that their beta cells are declining. So we know that in some people it might be a primary cause of type 2. But on the other hand, we also have data that suggests in other people, the first defect you see is insulin resistance and the decline in beta cell function comes later. And it's probably what we're learning more and more about how heterogeneous type two is. Again, it's, it presents so differently in different people. It might be there's a different primary cause in different people. Um, but certainly, even if the primary insult, let's say, is insulin resistance, you cannot get diabetes until your beta cells fail. Um, so when people talk about type 2 diabetes being insulin resistance, that's a mischaracterization. Insulin resistance is an important component of it. But until your beta cells stop working properly, you are able to keep glucose in the normal range, and thus it's not diabetes. Um, so it's heterogeneous. And I guess the important thing to say is the decline in beta cell function happens over a long, long period of time. So it, we, we're probably talking a minimum of five, maybe a maximum of 20 years that that decline takes place. Okay. So you, you mentioned just with that example of the, the children of uh, diabetics. So that might indicate that there's a potential genetic component of what's going on um, 
with diabetes itself. I suppose you could also look to a certain extent that, you know, if, if you're looking at children of diabetics, there may be some um, kind of a causal relationship between diets just because we're doing a, the diets of children are going to be quite similar to um, to uh, their parents. But if we look at the genetic mm-hmm. side of things, what people or what groups of people seem to be at a higher risk of uh, developing diabetes? Um, I mean, here I think it's really important actually to separate the genetics uh, from from people at risk. And, and I'll try and explain why. I mean, so, so coming to the genetics, there's been a lot of work. I'm not a geneticist and I will embarrass myself when I talk about this because I don't often use the right terms. But we have a bunch of studies that have tried to identify genes which are associated with common type 2. And by common type 2, I mean the type 2 diabetes that's so prevalent in the population. And I make the distinction between that, which we think is polygenic, and the monogenic type of diabetes, which has literally one gene just has to go wrong and boom, you get diabetes. That's very different. In type 2 diabetes, so far as we know, there is not one single gene that goes wrong that causes you to have it or protects you from it. It looks like there's a combination of genes that um, the expression of which uh, varies in different ways that contributes. All of those genes, my understanding is to date, or nearly all of them, um, are to do with the beta cell. So the, the, we think the reason genetically, if there is a genetic reason people get type 2 diabetes, is all to do with that they have a genetic risk of their beta cells failing. Um, but that said, it certainly increases the individual, or sorry, the population level, it increases the risk. But actually, individually, it can't explain at all the explosion of type 2 diabetes that we've seen uh, in the past 30 years. So there has to be uh, effects from the environment. This is obesity, um, a sedentary lifestyle with a background of genetics. Because, of course, you could be 400 pounds, uh, had a very sedentary lifestyle and have perfectly normal blood glucose because your beta cells can respond properly. So genetics plays a role. And so does lifestyle. So in terms of who's at risk, and you make a great point about how do we know it's genetics or not the parents' lifestyle or the intrauterine environment that's causing people who are offspring of people with type or parents with type 2 to get it. Um, and, and this also explains, I think, the, the uh, role of ethnicity. So in terms of, to go back to your question, who's at most risk, people who have a first degree relative with type 2 diabetes either a parent or a sibling, you're at much higher risk. Then we also have uh, people from certain ethnicities. And we know that people from Southern Asian ethnicities, African Caribbean background, um, and Asian in general, so Chinese, Japanese, they all have a much higher risk of type two. And importantly, they are at higher risk at the same BMI as their Caucasian counterparts. And the reason I, I kind of warned against saying this is genetic is that actually there isn't a clear so far as i know genetic picture that explains the variation there are different we call them snips so polymorphisms between different ethnicities but it it doesn't look like it's enough to explain all the difference and so why that might be whether it's historical diet three generations ago in india no one really knows but this is a really active and important area of research so just just from that perspective, like uh, I, I think it's 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 very very important to, to to bear in mind that difference in let's say BMI cutoffs for risk within d- different populations. Um, with here with, in the in the UK, for example, obviously there there is a very very multiracial um, population. 
has the NHS taken that into account in, in risk stratification or different cutoffs specifically for different people of different ethnicities? I mean, in terms of the management of type 2 diabetes, I mean, so, so type 2 diabetes until three years ago was really diagnosed, um, I don't want to say serendipitously, but by chance. Uh, very often you might end up in a hospital and your blood glucose would be elevated because they would randomly check it and people are diagnosed. And we've also had health checks. So if people reach a certain age, they're identified as having high blood glucose. So there hasn't been any effort to kind of go out and look at people at younger ages or lower BMIs. But now we have the National Diabetes Prevention Program, which has better screening strategies. Um, but in terms of the lower BMI, the issue is... Um, that there aren't enough places for everyone who's at risk of type 2. So in, in theory, yes, the NHS has lower cutoffs for, for people of Southern Asian ethnicity. They should be using those for public health strategies. Uh, that's the NICE guidelines. In practice, what uh, GPs and what local authorities are having to do is basically get the people who are high, highest risk or first come, first served, and they go into the diabetes prevention program. Okay, um, and that's completely understandable because obviously NHS being publicly funded, you know, there's there's only so much money going around. Um, just to kind of move away from, let's say, the uh, that treatment area um, at the moment, you did mention uh, the role of diet and lifestyle in the etiology of the disease, and I was just wondering if 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 you could elaborate on some of the let's say lifestyle factors that play a role or can contribute to the development of diabetes i mean and that is a great question uh and, and this is is unbelievably uh, very difficult to study and amazingly we don't actually know much about it you would think given the explosion of type 2 and we know diets involved that we would have concrete answers on this we really don't i mean definitely what we know is that weight gain itself uh the evidence is undoubtable i mean that is the strongest evidence weight gain increases your risk of type 2 so probably for every kilogram someone is over there a healthy body weight their risk of developing type 2 goes up by five to nine percent conversely with every kilogram someone with pre-diabetes loses their risk of developing type 2 goes down by 16 percent so undoubtedly keeping a healthy weight however you do it is the most important thing then we come to well are there foods that quite apart from the fact they cause you to to gain weight, contribute to type two. So independent of weight. Um, and, and for me, that the best evidence in terms of causal is sugar sweetened beverages. So Coca-Cola, uh, any sucrose or high fructose corn syrup in liquid, especially, um, is probably contributing to type two diabetes, even if it doesn't cause a person to weight, to gain weight. Uh, and we know this because there are some studies that have been done and they're about six months long and they show increasing liver fat, rising glucose, insulin resistant, independent of any change in weight. But the important caveat here is the amount of, of sugar sweetened beverage they're giving. So you're talking 25% of calories come from sugar sweetened beverages or, you know, a liter of Coke a day for six months. So it's a lot. Um, but that to me is evidence that yes, uh, sugar sweetened beverages can cause type 2 even if they don't cause you to gain weight and this really has relevance a relevance sorry to, for the population because we do have adolescents and some people in the population who actually do get a quarter of their calories from 
uh, sugary drinks. Um, so th that's on the causal side. Uh, stuff that might help protect us against type 2 diabetes, um, fiber possibly. And again, you probably need 40 grams a day to see an effect. Uh, there have been some trials done that have tried to look at this and they don't produce significant results in terms of preventing type 2, but there's what we call a trend. So in other words, it looks like it plays a role, um, but independent of weight, I, I would be quite skeptical. And actually some of the best evidence, and people hate this because people hate um, N6, you know, omega-6 fatty acids, but actually some of the best and most consistent evidence is that polyunsaturated and omega-6 fatty acids improve peripheral insulin sensitivity and in doing so probably help prevent type 2 diabetes. There's also some data showing that polyunsaturated fats, when they replace saturates from butter, um, help improve insulin sensitivity and prevent uh, fat from depositing in the liver. But again, do I think that's a huge effect? No, I don't. Okay, just to um, to go back to, to the comments on uh, sugar. So obviously, uh, within the general population, uh, if if you ask anybody, you know, they, they'll say, oh, yeah, it, if you're talking about what causes uh, diabetes, it's sugar. If you if you eat a lot of sugar, you're going to get diabetes. And you mentioned a very, very interesting point in that you said that kind of regardless of, even in a situation where we're not looking at specific weight gain, um, we can see an, a negative effect of increased sugar consumption on the development of diabetes. What is it um, uh, about uh, sugar that mechanistically could be causing this? Um, so, so most people think, and there's there's fairly good evidence for this, that it's simply that it's it's the fructose molecule. So sucrose is made up of glucose and fructose. Glucose, as much as people get uh, quite passionate about the role of carbohydrates in general, glucose itself doesn't seem to be harmful in excess because your body metabolizes it different from fructose. The important thing about fructose is it's metabolized straight by the liver. So rather than kind of going around your circulation, uh, fructose is, is metabolized first by the liver, which is very, very sensitive to fructose and importantly has no stop signal. So your liver can metabolize um, an amount of, amount of fructose. We don't know exactly what that is, but probably the amount that would be found naturally in foods. So maybe you're talking if you had uh, you know, fruits, four or five fruits a day, maybe we're talking 30 grams of fructose. The amount that's found in, in uh, fruit, probably uh, that can be managed uh, effectively and metabolized by the liver. But what happens when you have excess is because there's no break on that fructose, it gets um, converted to triglyceride and then it just deposits and sits in the liver. And what we know uh, about fatty liver is that it is certainly maybe a cause, but it certainly exacerbates insulin resistance. It's heavily linked to cardiovascular disease. It's heavily linked to type 2 diabetes. So that's the problem with fructose is not what it does to your blood sugar, because actually fructose helps keep your blood sugar low. It's what happens when you have excess fructose because of the fatty liver. Okay. Um, I just kind of, I want to stick with the, the dietary aspects for the moment. So we, we kind of, we spoke about some of the, the causal, potential causal agents. Um, from a, a dietary perspective, um, what options um, have, or what strategies have we looked at in, in let's say, the scientific literature uh, when it comes to dealing 
with diabetes. Are there viable strategies out there? Um, or what are they? And um, what other kind of potential areas are we looking at moving into the future? Okay, so this could be long. <laughs> so interrupt, <laughs> interrupt me, because this is what my research looks at. Um, so, so what we've known for quite a while is, like I said, because of the role of weight gain and weight loss in the management of, of type 2, weight loss is key. I have a problem with this for several reasons. Um, firstly, because of how difficult weight loss is to achieve. I think we should be considering weight neutral strategies. Um, and, and, and weight loss itself, I actually think is one of the most boring areas. Sorry if anyone's offended, but one of the most boring areas of nutrition because it boils down so much to what a person likes and enjoys because that's something you're gonna need long-term. And the difficulty that we know with sustaining weight loss is that you get adaptations to weight loss that cause your appetite to increase. So it's a really tough thing to achieve. Whereas if you think about something, a dietary approach that doesn't need or doesn't rely on you to lose weight, actually it's probably easier to sustain. Uh, so for those who follow me on Twitter or Instagram, they probably know I'm, I'm quite a big proponent of low carbohydrate diets. And what I think is interesting, and we're doing a study right now looking at different doses of carbohydrate in the diet, isocalorically. So we feed people so that they don't lose weight. So some people are getting 2,500, 3,000 calories a day, but we keep their percentage of carb low. Uh, and we haven't finished the study yet, but what we see is that glucose remains low. Uh, in some people, completely normal with no weight loss simply by reducing the amount of carbohydrate in the diet. And this mirrors what's in the literature. So there have been a number of studies, and if people are interested, um, Gannon and Nuttall have some beautiful work that they've done where they reduce carbohydrate, whether it's to 20 to 30% of calories, but importantly, they increase protein. And if you look at most of their work, they're giving 30% of protein with different amounts of carb. And this is important because protein is insulinogenic, so it'll make the pancreas produce insulin after you eat. And I think it's that in combination with reducing carb that really gets the normal glucose levels. So, and this gets missed because I think, yes, we should be going low carb, but I think you get the best and optimal effects on glucose if you also increase protein. So another study we're actually just about to start at the University of Westminster is keeping everyone on a low carb diet. So for five weeks, everyone's on 20% of calories from carb. And then we randomize them to receive high or low protein. And we're using continuous glucose monitoring the whole time. So what we want to look at is their glucose over the five weeks. Every five minutes, 24 hours a day, we'll be measuring it. And what I hypothesize you'll see is that low carb can, yes, reduce glucose, but you get the lowest glucose when you also increase protein. Um, and I think this is really important. I think these kind of studies are so important because they're not currently in the guidelines. Gannon and Nuttall's work, amazingly, is not in any or certainly the UK guidelines, um, and they should be. And a huge issue I have is that we rely on randomized control trials to determine our dietary guidelines. And I think going back to when I started here and I was talking about what frustrated me being a dietitian because we didn't have good advice, the advice we have is based on randomized control trials where basically most people don't stick to the diet. And of course that's important because you can't have a diet that's physiologically efficacious if no one sticks to it, but it also prevents you from making any conclusions. 
And so to give you an example, there's a meta-analysis by uh, Bueno, who's the first author, published in 2013, where they tried to look at all of the low-carb trials that were aiming for under 50 grams a day. So this is in people in type 2, you prescribe under 50 grams a day. There were nine trials, I think. They didn't even measure carbohydrate intake in most of the trials, but in those they did, no one stuck to it. And by the end of the year, one of the groups was on 180 grams a day, another was 120 grams. So it's not low carb. And what the scientific community has concluded from these studies is that low carbohydrate diets don't improve blood glucose compared to any other diet. And to me, that's wrong. To me, those studies should be entitled advising people to eat low carb, or we conclude advising people to eat low carb doesn't improve glucose levels compared to advising people to eat low fat. And I think this is intellectual dishonesty. <laughs> um, and I think it's unfair to people living with type 2 diabetes because I think they should be getting the best data we can give them. And currently we haven't had that data and those studies being done. Um, so this is why I'm so passionate about doing work and translating it to my own clinical practice. Um, so obviously in any dietary trial, uh, adherence to a diet is one of the greatest problems that anybody's going to, to come up against. Um, and I can completely understand, you know, your frustration with a, with a trial that claims to be low-carb, but nobody's actually following the low-carb protocol. Um, and you did mention that you have a couple of trials lined up um, at the University of Westminster. But how are you going to deal with that in those trials? What um, are you, you and your team planning uh, to do to make sure that people are sticking to, to a, let's say, a real low-carb diet? Oh, great question. I mean, so as a point one, keep it short. I mean, so it's five weeks. So with the two studies we're doing, one is, is uh, five trials, each lasting seven days. Uh, so you keep it short, you ring them every day, you support them. Um, with the one at Westminster, that's five weeks long. So that's one thing you do, keep it short. The other thing is you provide people with food. So rather than giving people a diet sheet, that doesn't work. So we provide people with meals uh, that get delivered. Um, then what we do is we ask them to take photos of their food before and after they eat it. Um, what we also have is the continuous glucose monitoring. Um, and what we can see where people are not sticking to the diet, you, you know, because you see a blip in glucose. So if someone is following low carb for five days and then, you know, often it's midnight. So we've had some participants previously and you can see this huge blip at midnight. Um, and so you, you know they haven't stuck to the diet and that helps us understand compliance a bit more. Um, and the other really important thing is, is keeping it weight neutral. And this is, not hard, this is not easy. So especially when you go to 10 or 15% of calories from carb, you really have to work hard to make sure that people are staying the same weight. So in our studies, we try to use Bluetooth enabled scales so that we ask the participants to stand on the scales every morning uh, the weight comes through to us, and if people are losing or gaining, we adjust their energy intake to try to keep them at the same weight. Okay, so it, it's 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 not it's clearly not easy what you're doing to, but it, I I can I completely appreciate like the fact that you want to keep this weight neutral and you want to see just the effects of the diet itself as opposed to the effects of of weight loss. Absolutely, right? yeah, and and there's no perfect study, so often. Uh, 
some of my colleagues are like, yeah, but with low carb, you lose weight. And some people like a vegetarian diet and they lose weight. So they'll say your study is not real life because you're having to work so hard to keep them the same weight. But the important thing for me is scientific evidence to change the guidelines. Because right now people have been doing these long-term RCTs ad nauseum and you really can't interpret the data because you get such differences in weight loss. There's so much noise. Um, often they've measured A1C. Lots of things contribute to A1C. So that's an average of blood glucose over three months. Whereas with now with CGM, you can see it much more clearly what's going on. Um, and so the studies are not about replicating real life. It's about showing conclusively independent from other factors, carbohydrate restriction per se, and or protein lowers glucose. And I think this is the kind of data that we need for guidelines. And this is what I use with my patients. So you made a good point about people have to like a diet, even to get blood glucose lowering effects, you've got to like it and enjoy it. And so what I do with my patients, uh, I do this with the direct study. So this is the meal replacement study is I'll explain the study to them. And I'll say in people who've had type two diabetes of a short duration, uh, they weren't on insulin. This many people could get their type two diabetes into remission. It looks like weight loss maintenance is really important. And this is what the diet looks like. So every day you'd be doing this. This is the long-term weight maintenance. And I do the same with low carb. I explain all the research and I'll show them meal plans or pictures of meals and say, this is what it looks like. And I let the patient choose based on the scientific evidence and what they think they can follow. I, I think it, it is definitely important, especially from a mechanistic perspective, just to be able to identify you know, some of those additional non-weight non related effects. Um, and then, and then even with that, when you've established that there may be this, uh, let's say, non-body weight related effects to a low carbohydrate diet, and then you can potentially say, okay, we know this mechanistically works. We can add this on top of a weight loss protocol as well, and we may potentially get even even better effects. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, just just moving on from there, just because you've mentioned direct um, a couple of times, and I really do want to talk about the direct trial. Just before we do that, I was wondering. Um, if you uh, might be able to kind of t tell us a little bit about the difference or the importance of the difference between, uh, when we're talking about diabetes, the difference between remission and reversal of, of diabetes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this just comes down to semantics. Um, and, and so this is important for several reasons. So, for example, a lot of people say uh, type 2 diabetes is reversed or cured. Um, following whether it's a low carb diet or whether it's a, the direct kind of approach. And I think this is wrong for, for several reasons. It's certainly not cure. What, we, what we're seeing with direct and what we've seen historically, even with bariatric surgery, is type 2 diabetes can come back. Um, and this is really important for the patient to know um, because that's a difficult thing to deal with, to think that, oh, I've got rid of my diabetes, I've cured it, and then to get it back, I think... We need to manage expectations of the patient. And realistically, the data suggests that in a lot of people it can come back. And I think we need to prepare patients for that. Uh, the second thing comes around managing the patient's medical care. So patients with type 2 diabetes must have their eyes checked. They have to have uh, feet checks and, and health checks um, every year, or at least frequently, depending on where you live in the world. Um, and a, a huge question is, okay, if they've cured it or it's been reversed, what do we do with that? So 
remission for me is the most appropriate term because it kind of says what it is on the tin. You're in remission, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to come back. So it's great that you've achieved it, but it's always something that a person needs to be aware of. Um, and actually, increasingly, I'm seeing the importance of the words that we use in practice. So I have lots of patients who've managed to put their type 2 diabetes into remission, but their blood glucose is slowly creeping up. And in some people, it's to do with weight gain. In other people, it's not. And this is, this is really difficult to explain and manage because of the heterogeneity of type 2. And I think it's probably the case that if someone has type 2 diabetes that's predominantly caused by a beta cell defect, because all, all of that powerful genetics or whatever it is, lifestyle can possibly only do so much. Um, we're also getting some evidence that there are elements of glucose leaking out from the liver. So we call this kind of endogenous glucose production or hepatic glucose output it looks like that is much more difficult to manage with lifestyle than, say, peripheral insulin resistance. So if you're talking about the muscles taking up insulin, that looks like it's super easy to fix with diet. Getting fat out of the liver looks like it's super easy to fix with diet. So there are two elements, the beta cell dysfunction and maybe the endogenous glucose output that cause blood glucose to creep back in some people. And the advice I give to lots of patients, particularly with the hepatic glucose output, is think about going back on metformin, because what that does is it suppresses hepatic glucose output. It's the perfect drug for it. But this is where the semantics is having a huge effect, because I have lots of patients who've become really attached to remission. They're so naturally and understandably proud of themselves because they've got rid of their diabetes that they, they really resent having to go back on a medication like, oh, but, but if I have to go back on metformin, that means I'm not in remission anymore. And, and I kind of explain, well, think about it as the best combination of lifestyle and medicine. You've done everything you can with lifestyle. What you've achieved has taken, um, you know, giving you back many, many years of healthy life. And metformin is just fixing the thing that maybe your genetics is causing. Um, and so this is what's happening. So I don't like reverse or cure because I think it sets up unrealistic expectations for the patient. Absolutely. Uh, I think, I think the, uh, the way that uh, practitioners speak with patients is, uh, is incredibly important. And it, it's, it's almost a pity. It's, it's something that's only coming to the forefront um, recently. Um, yeah. Just moving on from that, like, I do want to get into the direct trial. And I was wondering if you could kind of give everybody a little bit of a um, kind of a brief overview of what the trial was, how it worked, and, and what, the, what they found. Sure. I guess let me give some background about what led to the trial. So we've always considered type 2 diabetes a progressive disease. And this is simply because if we measure the amount of insulin that the beta cells can produce over time, we can very clearly see it declines using those sophisticated tests I talk about. So there is absolutely no doubt that beta cell function declines through pre-diabetes all the way through type 2 for as long as you have it. We also know that people have always needed more and more medications to manage it. If we take uh, cadavers of people with type 2 diabetes and measure and weigh the beta cells compared to cadavers of people without diabetes, there's actually a difference in weight. And that was one of the indicators that 
beta cells are actually dying in type 2. So the evidence was very, very strong that type 2 diabetes is progressive. And I think that's really important to note because you get a lot of people critical of science saying, oh, well, they've got it wrong because look, low carb can work. The science is not wrong. Beta cell function declines over time. We know that. And so when bariatric surgery came around, this was amazing because what was happening was people with obesity were undergoing bariatric surgery for their obesity. But what was happening is if those patients also had type 2, within 48 hours, they were able to come off their type 2 diabetes medications. And this wasn't to do with weight, because yes, of course, if you have bariatric surgery, you lose a ton of weight. But this was happening within 24 to 48 hours of the surgery. And so it got the whole scientific world waking up thinking, what on earth is happening here? These people are effectively having their type 2 diabetes cured with a single surgery. And what people thought about was, OK, wait a second. Whenever you're obese and you have surgery like bariatric surgery, you have to undergo a liver reducing diet for two weeks before the surgery. So you might have 800 calories a day or it might be low carb. Then after the surgery, because it's major surgery, you can't eat for a long time. So you, you're nil by mouth before and after the surgery. Then you can have clear liquids, so not much calories, then uh, thick liquids, then you gradually transition to food. But for a long, long time, you are eating far, far less than you ever used to. And so people thought maybe there's something in this, that something about this starvation that's causing type 2 diabetes to become cured. And so that started a lot of work. So people started giving a very, very low energy diet, 400 calories a day, 600, 800 calories a day to people with obesity and type 2 diabetes and asked the question, can people come off their medications? And what they found is, yes, people could. But what directed is it took that, uh, all of that data and kind of said, well, does it work in real life? And are the effects sustainable? So what they did is they recruited 300 people. They achieved this incredible weight loss, 15% of, of uh, weight loss they were aiming for. And actually that, was, that came from uh, gastric banding studies. They were like, okay, you need that much weight in gastric banding to get remission. Let's try and do the same with diet. So that's what they were aiming for. And then they knew how important rem uh, retaining that weight loss was for, for remission. And so what they saw is in 70... Now, 86% of people who lost and maintained more than 10 kilograms of weight loss got remission of their type 2 diabetes at one year. So even though they'd been on this diet, even when they went back to their normal lives, they could still maintain their remission. And the definition of remission was being off medications or diabetes medications for two months. Uh, and so what was exciting about this trial and some other work that had been done is what they showed is the effect on rebooting the beta cells. So I started this by saying what we know is that you get a decline in beta cell function the longer you have type 2. That's, that's um, incontrovertible. We know that's the case. And what Direct showed and, and work by uh, Roy Taylor, the professor who was involved, is that not only can a dietary protocol cause your beta cells to reboot, the effect lasts. So it's not just that your beta cells come back to life for the moment, you know, for a couple of days after you finish this diet, they come back to life for as long as you can maintain the weight loss. And scientifically, that's extraordinary because that goes against everything we always thought we knew about what happens to beta cells in type 2 diabetes.
So that's direct. Now that was the one year data, the type, the, the year two data, I think are slightly less exciting. Um, and that's really because people are beginning to get the weight creeping back on. This happens. Um, there's not much you can do about that with any diet, no matter what people say. On average, every dietary trial ever done, people regain the weight. But where I think research should be going is trying to look at time-restricted feeding, low-carbohydrate, high-protein diets to try to maintain better weight loss um, and try to keep blood glucose uh, normal for longer. Um, one thing that I, I found particularly interesting about the direct study was, um, like you said, it, it was quite, a, let's say, an aggressive calorie deficit. Um, do you think that there is some... Um, let's say, benefit to having that particularly aggressive deficit and having, let's say, a concentrated amount of weight loss in a very, very short amount of time uh, that, that could be having that specific effect on the beta cells? Yes, it looks like there is. Um, and it looks like there are two things that can help your beta cells come back. The first is, is massive weight loss. And by massive, I'm talking 15 kilograms, more or less. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because there are a number of studies, not many, but where they've achieved that amount of weight loss over a long period of time. So very, very gradual. And you do see some of the same rebooting of the beta cells. But definitely the rate of weight loss seems to be critical here. Um, and there's one study, it was seven days long. They gave people 400 calories a day. And 400 calories is nothing, but you still don't lose that much weight, not in seven days. So I think it's about a kilo, one kilogram weight loss they get at seven days. And what we know is if you lose, I mean, like the look ahead study, they lost 8% of body weight over about six months. So far as we know, they didn't get anywhere close to the remission of other studies. There could be several reasons for that, but I think it's because they don't get the beta cells rebooting because I think you need really rapid weight loss. So in this study, where in seven days, they lost like 1.3, 1.5 kilos, all of the pathophysiology of type two normalized within seven days on 400 calories. And it's probably the rate, as you say, the rate of weight loss that's important. Wow. Um, so obviously losing weight um, or calorie deficits are a particularly powerful way of um, I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm very, very cautious of using the word treating uh, diabetes, but helping people to manage diabetes and potentially get people into remission. Um, but that's in individuals that probably have a large amount of weight to lose. I know that there are, there are individuals who are suffering from diabetes um, that most people would consider to be lean and far from, from being or suffering from overweight or obesity. What can individuals who like that, you know, the, the, let's say the lean subtype of uh, diabetes, what strategies are available for people like that to, to kind of help manage their, their illness? Okay. I mean, this is, so first of all, let's talk about what we mean by lean, because we might be talking about someone who's slim on the outside, but might have ectopic fat deposition. So that's basically fat that's not deposited outside it goes into the liver and maybe the pancreas and so this is when we were talking earlier on about certain ethnicities that are at higher risk they can actually have a bmi maybe of 24 but they have a large amount of fat deposited internally so in many many lean individuals they're actually fat on the inside um and probably in those people 
some weight loss is going to cause the same effect as, as directed. And actually, the investigators in direct are doing that study right now. So in lean people, they're trying to achieve the same degree of weight loss and seeing what happens. But that, again, is, is kind of all to do with lifestyle and, and Going back to the heterogeneity of type 2, it's probably in people who are, let's call it insulin-resistant, predominant type 2 diabetes. But there are lots of people who are very slim. Actually, not lots of people, but there are enough people who are very slim, very active, but they still have type 2. And in those people, it's more challenging. And it also is in uh, many people who are maybe 65 years old, 70. They're actually relatively slim. Um, they've kept active and actually the type 2 diabetes is age induced really because the beta cells decline with age and I see quite a few of these two groups of patients so the beta cell predominant and let's call it the age induced type 2 diabetes and those groups actually don't want to lose weight and many of them say you know I'm happy with with the, the, my weight uh, I don't want to become frail and these are a challenging population to work with but my approach um, with both of these, particularly the latter group, is more protein and reduced carbohydrate. So I don't necessarily encourage weight loss. Um, and the protein is quite important for several reasons. As we get older, we lose lean body mass and protein can be important for that. It looks like protein, even when your beta cells don't respond properly to glucose, it looks like they still can to a greater extent to amino acids. So protein can actually keep insulin nice and healthy and high when you're eating to control your blood glucose. And actually having a lot of healthy fat can be quite palatable in those people. So, I mean, if you want to put macros on it, typically I might have those people doing 25 to 30% protein, really encourage the plant and animal protein sources. Um, loads of healthy fat, maybe about 40%, and then limit the carbohydrate to the rest. Um, but they are actually the hardest patients to deal with. When you have someone, um, frankly, who's doing everything right, you know, if you're a dietitian, someone walks through the door, says, yeah, I run a 10K every day, um, I eat loads of whole grains, um, healthy fats, etc. They're quite difficult to handle um, compared to, for example, someone who walks through the, your door, they're overweight, lots of takeout, loads of sugar-sweetened beverages. I mean, they're, they're easier to help. Yeah, um, I, I suppose one thing that's really, really important to, to kind of to bear in mind when we're, we're talking about, let's say, that that slim type of, of diabetes is um, we could very, very easily classify them as slim according to BMI. But if we're looking specifically at something like body composition, you know, like you mentioned, when we're talking about somebody having, um, you know, let's say more internal fat deposition or something like that, quite a high level of uh, fat to lean mass it's a completely different situation and it's something that we kind of, we might need to, to, to bear in mind moving into the future. No, I completely agree. Um, and when I was at Imperial, I was at Imperial College for five years and I worked in the MRI scanning unit. So this was a, a group led by Jimmy Bell and Louise Thomas who have scanned, I imagine, thousands and thousands of people, maybe 5,000, maybe more. Um, and they get volunteers coming in to do it. And the number of people who are shocked by the amount of fat they have in their liver and visceral fat, because too often we think about health in terms of aesthetics. Um, and it's one of those things that's difficult to translate to, to public health and get the message out, because for so, so much, many of us, weight is health. If someone thinks, oh, well, I'm slim, I must be healthy. Um, and way too many of us are sedentary. And what we see uh, with the data when we look at it, you know, from those thousands of people is 
simply not doing enough exercise is enough to get fat in your liver. But then the good news is for those slim people, and I mean, I think of some friends of mine, you know, you get a car, you live in suburbia. It's very easy to not walk more than 2000 steps a day. Um, but the good news is the moment you start exercising, you can lose fat from the liver, even if you don't lose weight. Um, I, I think we, we, we could literally talk about this all night and get, <laughs> go, go down a lot of different rabbit holes, which I would love to. Oh, yeah. We may need to get you to come back on and, and speak about this again. Um, just before I, I finish up, because I, I am very, very conscious of your time, um, I would like to ask you, so the, the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, and obviously lifestyle medicine is becoming a very, very, it's becoming a bit of a buzzword at the moment, but um, I, I think it does have quite a potential for its future. Um, the, the BSLM came up with their One Change campaign, which is a, a change, the one change that people can make to make a, a, an instant um, improvement on their health. And while I don't want to limit you to one change exclusively, I was just thinking, what would be some of the key changes that people should be considering when it comes to reducing the risk of uh, diabetes in the future? I mean, I, I would say the one thing that is such a no-brainer, I mean, this is going to be obvious, you don't need a PhD in nutrition to know this, is is sugar-sweetened beverages. I mean, in terms of, you know, bang for your buck, like I, I like to eat sugary things, but if I'm going to have those foods, like I like to go for a tiramisu, like make it count. If you're going to have that stuff, make it count. And, and I think the thing about sugar-sweetened beverages is you sip it and it's gone. It's got no nutrition. Um, what we know is it doesn't even fill you up that much. It's not even that satisfying. A lot of the, the perceived addiction is often thirst and habit and all of that stuff. And so it's such a simple no-brainer, especially for adolescents, because it's a lot of adolescents who are having a lot of their calories from sugar. Just do not touch. Like, don't drink ever, ever, ever. Coke, the monster drinks, Red Bull, and I'm going to put fruit juice in this too. Smoothies, innocent smoothies, uh, whatever they are, eat your fruit, don't drink it. You have as much fructose um, and sugar in, in most smoothies as you do in Coca-Cola. So if there's one, one thing that a population should do that to me is a no-brainer is stop drinking sugar. I, I think that's a, a very, very pragmatic um, that's a tip that people could uh, could really, really benefit from um, following. Um, so, Nicola, I, I want to say thank you very, very much for, for joining us tonight. Just before we end up, how can people, um, let's say, uh, find out more about your work or follow you and um, just to, so they, they know what you're, what you're up to? Um, so I'm very active on Twitter, uh, or at least when my schedule allows. So um, I'm the same on Twitter as I am on Insta, which is Dr. Uh, underscore underscore guest so it's two underscores someone got in there early um and we have a website so um our clinical and um consulting work we have a website called city dietitians i do that with my colleague sophie medlin we organize a lot of outreach courses um we're organizing free webinars for people who are interested in stuff we do um and the only thing you'll ever hear me talk about is diabetes because that's my specialty um and I guess if there's one thing I can say is specialism really counts. Um, and so the great thing about City Dietitian, if folks are interested in nutrition and gastro, we have people that just specialize on that. Um, so those are the kind of uh, events that we uh, hopefully put on to educate the public. Fantastic. I understand you have um, an event coming up very, very shortly. Um, oh, yes, that's, that's right. Part of the reason why I'm really busy. Yes. So we're doing a, a fantastic 
uh, remission of type 2 diabetes day. So this is three dietitians, myself, um, Adrian Brown, Owen Marples, two GPs, Peter Foley and David Unwin. Uh, David Unwin is, is quite famous in the low carb world. Um, and it's a totally non-dogmatic day. We're basically talking about how you can help uh, patients get remission of type 2 diabetes um, with all the different approaches, how we do it in our own practices and clinics. So that's all day Friday. So hopefully there'll be lots on Twitter about it. Um, and we are doing what we can to get any resources on the day. We can film stuff um, that we can put up online. That's fantastic. I, I just want to wish it the uh, absolute best of success with that Thank event. Because, and I'm really looking forward to I can't make it myself, but I'm really, really looking forward to um, to hearing all about it as well. Um, Nicola, Thank you very, very much. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I know I've loved it, and I'm sure um, everybody who's been uh, checking it out has loved it as well. And uh, hopefully all the, the podcast listeners will be enjoying it too. Um, and like I said, we will have to have you back on in the future. Um, Great. So, nice talking to you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. Um, if you did, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps spread word of the podcast to new listeners. Uh, if you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at be underscore more underscore nutrition. I'd also love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast, so please feel free to comment on the podcast post or send me a message directly on Instagram. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.